Welcome back, everyone. I want to introduce you to uh, Laird Barron. Uh, Laird is a pr predominantly horror writer, but he also writes uh, crime fiction, or actually you could argue he's predominantly a crime writer, given, given the number of books he's written. So he's written some um, crime fiction, horror, uh, also some science fiction and fantasy. Laird, why don't you just tell the audience uh, you know, the, the thousand foot level background of who you are, where you're from, and the sorts of things you write? Hey, Sean, thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to see you again. So uh, yeah, Laird Barron here. I've been writing professionally for about 22 years. I'm predominantly known as a, a horror writer, but I think that you might have you might have hit on something. I think it might be accurate to say I'm a noir, a noir crime writer who inflects it with, with horror. Um, and my last three novels were actually set uh, in in kind of a noir mystery thriller sort of uh, genres, the, the Isaiah Coleridge trilogy. But prior to that, I was pretty well known for uh, writing a lot of short horror fiction and three uh, kind of cosmic horror Lovecraftian style collections, the Imago sequence, Occultation, and the beautiful thing that awaits us all. But I, I definitely veer toward kind of hard-boiled characters who run into things that that put them completely out of their depth, despite their wealth of experience, their toughness, their their training, as opposed to sort of the traditional horror aesthetic, especially in Lovecraftian horror of the effete nobility running into something or academics or uh, a lot of modern Judeo-Christian horror. It's kind of the everyman, you know, every person Kind of a kind of a uh, a narrator that that gets uh, in over their heads. I've always kind of veered toward uh, the hard bark character, and I think that has a lot to do with being born and raised in Alaska, living there for the first twenty five years of my life. My dad was a Marine. Um, my my grandfather uh, was in World War II, uh, served on a destroyer. Um, you know that kind of a thing, and then and then for many years, uh, my family lived in the wilderness on a homestead. There was a land act back in the late '70s, and you could grab a few uh, a parcel of land up to ten or uh, ten or twenty acres, and so we had ten acres, and we were really roughing it. And I think that had a lot to do with my development and inclination as, as a as a writer. Uh, not to mention that we didn't have a lot in the way of entertainment all those years. Uh, kerosene lamps we had a little gas generator that we could run you know an hour a day to power uh the car battery which in turn allowed us to have a little tiny seven or eight inch black black and white tv so we could watch the news but the rest of the time uh, you were on your own for entertainment so it was uh the book collection my mom had she had a bunch of westerns and romance novels and of course science fiction and crime and i just powered through that during my adolescence didn't didn't you this is i'm going to throw in a random thing that I may have picked up from the ether. So if, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, didn't they uh, find your grandfather kind of out in the wilderness? And there, there's a, like he, he may have been attacked or, or uh, something, something about a grizzly bear. You know, I, I want, I don't want to put words into the <laughs> right uh, story, but. It's, it's all sort of, you know, I received it secondhand because I wasn't particularly close to my grandfather by that point, but. Um, and it happened, I want to say near Carmax. It's in the Canadian wilderness. Mm -hmm. And he had a gold, uh, a gold claim up there. And he was in his, when he died, he was in his 60s. So 
they found they found his remains uh, near his gold claim, and and he, there was a, a four wheeler that he'd been using, and it was stuck in the mud nearby, because this this occurred essentially in Canadian Spring. This this happened like in uh, either early June or or um, late May, which would be mud season where he was, mm -hmm. and so they don't know whether he died of a heart attack. And then the bears came upon him and ate him or whether he was trying to get away from him and they ate him, but he was eaten. There is no dispute about that. A couple of grizzlies, uh, you know, there was not, there was just nothing left of him. So uh, that's, that's how he met his demise. And that was back in uh, 92. Wow. Have you had any encounters growing up with grizzlies or, you know, uh, large game, anything like that. Well, I guess it's not game, so to speak. Well, no, but I, I've seen I've seen grizzlies from afar. I've seen we've had encounters with black bear, which are of course the most prevalent right. North American bear, and you know, uh, even in the continent of Alaska or the United States of Alaska, as the locals like to call it. But um, I've never had any never had any experiences, any negative experiences up close with the big bear, including polar bear, but. Black bear, very. We've had some pretty close encounters with them. Had a lot of close encounters with, uh, relatively speaking, with moose. I mean, all of mm -hmm. them. I mean, they're prevalent there. And the fact that we lived in the wilderness, I, I've traveled at least forty to fifty thousand miles on the back of a dog team over, you know, the twelve or fourteen years that I watched. You, you already anticipated my next question, my friend. <laughs> well, I, the point I'm yeah. just going to make is, it's kind of like when we yeah. cite oh, this breed of dog bites people. You're like, okay, but there's millions of these pets out there. And so we get X amount of bites. It sounds like a lot, but when you start. So I've been stomped by moose. Everybody in my family has, but compared to how many times they could have stomped us, it was pretty negligible. But I want to say just like all the guys in my family, at least my immediate family have had close encounters and have been run over by moose. But moose are, I think, day on a day-to-day -day basis or percentage basis are far more of a threat to your your health than a than a black bear and is that because during the period when they're in heat they're more aggressive or is it just in general just in general they're um it depends on where you meet them too but you know obviously <clears throat> i think a lot, a lot of people that get hurt by a moose are in small towns or suburbs and so it, it's like any other wild human encounter if it happens in a, a, a place where people travel or live a lot of times the the incidents are more extreme they escalate because people aren't afraid of them or the animal's not as afraid of the people and and so there's this more likely to be a close quarters interaction in our case the reason that we had trouble with them was completely different it's winter time uh in the summertime they would run away from us almost every time you just make noise and they're gone but in the winter time with 14 18 feet of snow uh and then you're traveling on the snowmobile trail. That's the only real trail. Moose don't want to get out of that trail. They don't, they do not want to go floundering through the snow any more than you do. And so a lot of times you'll come around the corner on your snowmobile or on your dog team or hiking or whatever. And there's really nowhere where to go. And so the moose, if they attack, that's a lot of times what will, uh, that and, you know, babies, obviously calves or something, but those are the primary times when we've had encounters was due to just, there was nowhere for there wasn't really any practical way for for me to get out of the way or i was on my dog team and of course they don't they look at dogs and they go a, a dog team they go wolves 
uh, and I've seen I've seen uh, what happens to them when the wolves get a hold get a hold of them. So they're they're very much you know terrified of wolves, and so it's either fight or flight. And a lot of times they'll they'll fight. So you just have to be really. That's just it's one of the if you travel a lot in the wilderness in Alaska in the wintertime, that's one of the hazards you face is moose. Now you mentioned having a dog team. You participated in the Iditarod uh, <coughs> yeah. a few times. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did you get involved in that, and and how is that? experience informed some of your writing well that's an interesting question it informed my writing right from the start but i didn't really talk about alaska much until in my writing uh, until about six years ago i wrote a a collection the fourth collection it was called swift to chase and almost every story was set in alaska and Mm -hmm. yeah they did a rod came up um it took me a long time it took me many years being away from Alaska before I felt like I had enough emotional distance to, to tackle it at least consistently. But uh, the way I got into the Iditarod, what happened is, is uh, I was born up in Alaska, but my father comes from Texas, my mom from Oregon, and they had lived, they had gone back and their families had gone back and forth from Alaska back in the fifties. And Alaska was just, you know, it was pretty, it, it was still pretty wild back, back in the fifties, even the settled area, you know, the, the white settled areas were still pretty wild. And uh, like, there were all very few paved roads until the seventies. So, and even then half of Anchorage, uh, which is the big, the biggest city up there uh, was unpaved. My father actually helped a, a paving company pave a lot of the businesses in, in Anchorage uh, in the latter seventies, mid to latter seventies. But so they traveled back and forth uh, established homesteads, both sets of parents established homesteads. And then they finally settled for good in the early sixties. And, um, you know, then my dad went off to Vietnam when he was, uh, or joined the Marines when he was 17, went off to Vietnam. And this would be the late, the very late sixties. And then of course I came along. And, uh, when I was very young, I was about eight years old. My father just, you know, I, to this day, I'm not sure because we, we, we're sort of estranged, but so we never really, I never really found out the story, but um, he just had enough of basically the rat race, as he called it. And he packed us up and put us on a river boat. And we went up the Yentna River about 60 miles and the land act, uh, he, he settled on a piece of land that was kind of set back from the river on a hill and built a cabin, Swift's family Robinson style. It was very primitive, very um, rough. We didn't have any money. I've always said that living in the wilderness, you know, either uh, you live in a land of milk and honey where resources are flowing freely or you have or you have a lot of money. Otherwise, you're miserable. And we were very miserable for at least the first five or six years. Uh, It was it was it was a tough experience, but it certainly influenced everything I've ever written. (coughs) Pardon me. uh, It warmed up last couple of days and my allergies are going crazy. But um, yeah, you, you know, it always influenced my writing. But it wasn't necessarily something that I that I approached directly until the last few years. And now I I do write about it more directly. Would you say Alaska shows up as a character or yeah, that's a simplistic way of putting it. But, you know, that that experience shows up in your writing in a way that conveys kind of the the harsh environment, like an environment that's out to kill you, uh, you know, things like that. Yeah. I, you know, I've used the word romanticize, but I, I mean that kind of in a more neutral way. 
in other words, I, I do I do like to imbue or characterize landscapes, whether it's Alaska or New York State, where I live now, I lived in Montana for a, a short period. Uh, any of these rugged sort of wilderness, because because New York State has a lot of wilderness. That was right. one thing that I really learned is it's primarily wilderness with huge population centers, but. Um, and even the population centers here, are, you know, a lot of them, if, unless you're in New York City, you're, there's, there's wilderness out our back door here. The Catskills are right behind us. And yet, if I go north of here 10 minutes, I'm in a, a you know, a city of 40,000. But mm -hmm. um, I, and this comes from my experience in Alaska, and I, and I felt it elsewhere. And I've talked to people who've grown up in the Midwest or people who've grown up overseas in some remote location, like in the mountains or something. Um, I, I, so I don't think it's particular to, to me or to Alaska, but Alaska, especially as I got older and more reflective, and I, and I actually raced the Iditarod in my 20s and had and was able to kind of cut across some of the more remote sections of Alaska, kind of in the way that I think the sailors used to know the sea much better back before the uh, before engines, back when they were just mm -hmm. sort of gliding with sails, you would see wildlife and you would you would just experience it in a much more visceral way than we do now with windscreens and engines blasting and heaters and whatnot you know in cars uh, and all-terrain vehicles and planes uh <coughs> in yachts and i i had the privilege to experience deep ancient alaska remote alaska with just me the dogs essentially on a pair a pair of skis with a toboggan uh, and I, you know, I, I did that three times. And, um, and of course I went, uh, you know, I, I fished commercial fishing. So I've not hugely extensive traveler. Like I didn't spend my life traveling across Alaska, but I've devoted many, many thousands of miles and many hundreds of hours out there and enough to, to really it engendered in me this, this feeling of an antibody kind of reaction to, to us, uh, that, that nature seems to have, like it's, it may not be say it may not be sentient, although I wouldn't even rule that out. But there's it has like a consciousness. Yeah, same way as your body does, separate from your brain, right? Your body doesn't doesn't understand that you know it's been infected with the germ. It just outcome the anti antibodies, and I really do feel sometimes when I'm in remote places, uh, Montana, I, I got the same feeling occasionally, is that there's always this pressure around us to expel us. And I think, it, I, and I think that it's part and parcel with how it's the whole circle, how animals eat each other, how there's always this sort of struggle, not even just for primacy, but just for, for, for survival. So I don't think it's anything personal. And I don't right. think it means that human beings don't belong. I, I always actually kind of have bridled at the idea that there's natural and then there's man-made. I'm like, well, what are we but part of nature? We're just maybe a, right. a dysfunctional aspect of nature, but, the, but the bottom or we may be a, we might be an evolutionary dead end, but the bottom the bottom line is, uh, I, I just felt on many occasions that my dogs and I were minute specks, and that we were that being expelled. That 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 there was this pressure to get to get us out of the body like a splinter coming out of the finger, um, kind of thing. And it's it's purely anecdotal. I have no. It's just a feeling, right? It's how you felt yeah. when you're out there. It's hard and, to explain. Right. And, but, but the relevance here is just to your question. It's, I, I try to characterize landscapes, but in a naturalistic way. In other words, the way that I actually feel about it. Not so much that there's a mother earth watching over me or a guy or whatever, but just that 
it's a living we're all part of a living organism and it reacts to us kind of like that cormac mccarthy in blood meridian like the way mm. he talks about the landscapes and things like that um at least it reminds me of that i don't know if it's accurate but no that's that's a good i have been, i was developing my own thesis about this obviously i didn't start reading mccarthy until the late 90s but or somewhere in there but yeah that's i mean it, it was one of those deals where when i when i read blood meridian which took me about six weeks the first time despite being a voracious reader because i had to read i could only tolerate it in chapters essentially or chunks and i had to like recover and then read it some more because it really hit me in a visceral way even though i've never had those i cannot share kinship with riding into old mexico and 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 you know on a on a scalping expedition uh type right. of thing i don't that's not part of my my family history but the reaction of nature of wilderness to the in incursion of of humans and animals you know domesticated animals and how mccarthy characterized the almost interchangeability of the cosmos with the landscape the alien landscape around them and the minuteness of of, of soft flesh i completely mm -hmm. i come I, I found a kin a, a kindred spirit when i ran into him somebody I mean, who there, understood there, precisely what i was thinking there is there is kind of a <laughs> biblical aspect to it as well at least the way he describes things mm -hmm. and stuff like that 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 is kind of in superposition with but separate from that other worldly aspect and i i can never pronounce it is it genius loci or is it genus loci i cannot I, I, well it was that was what i was getting ready to say and that's how i pronounce it. i just pronounce it a uh, genius loci that's it, it came up that that phrase and my preoccupation i have a few preoccupations that are threads that go through almost every one of my stories even no matter how what genre it is there's very frequently that element the the element of if there's anything to do with the wilderness or if even or even urban settings that have their own ecosystem and their own sort of subterranean um you know, semi semi sapient, semi sentient sort sort of uh, awareness. That's not particularly really particularly places where, I mean, I think one like walking through the Tenderloin in mm -hmm. in San Francisco, like yes. Yes. it's a dark place, and it's a dark place without people as well. It's almost like it's stained in some. Well, way. I'm sure we'll get into this later, but, and I'm no scientist, so this is just simply a fairly well read person's anecdotal observations about things. Uh, but, you know, I, I don't make a huge separation between the wilderness, the wilderness wilderness and the urban wilderness in the sense that they, they are different, but I, I still right. feel like the rules apply to both, that there's a, there's almost like this, there can be a, a, a genius loci element, there can be uh, this sort of unconscious rhythm or ecosystem that is separate, that derives from, but is separate from the mass teeming humanity because i've lived in cities and cities have their inexplicable and inhuman elements that actually i think transfigure the people that live there i think mm -hmm. that a lot of, a lot of behaviors that that we attribute to uh nurture are actually they are nurture but nature nurtures them and i think i think you're going to see certain elements come to the fore in people this transfiguring effect in any kind of location whether it's you're living in a ghetto 
or you're living in a high rise, you know, uh, setting or whether you're living like I was for many years in a little cabin in the middle of nowhere. I, I think the outcomes are different, but I think that mm -hmm. if you drew a line, there'd be a line between these that, that, that they're not they're not so different uh, in, in, where they derive from. And they derive from you are shaped psychic, uh, um, psychologically, if not physically, by your environment. So if if kind of the genus loci aspect is one of the themes of your writing, what <clears throat> other themes do you find yourself coming back to over and over again? Um, there's several, you know, I've used the word privilege again. I'm privileged to have been doing this. You know, I've been writing since I was five. Somebody said, how long it take you to write your first book? And I said, about 35, 35 years, <laughs> right. or I was, it was 37 years. It came out in 2007. That was my first book, but I've been writing professionally at this point for about 22 years. And the privileged aspect is that I've have enough people that are interested in my work to justify editors buying it. And that has allowed me to branch out a little bit. When I first started professionally writing, it was primarily Lovecraftian, so to speak, cosmic horror. And, right. you know, with, with, a, with a real bedrock of crime. You know, I grew up reading um, Parker and, and Elmore Leonard and people like that, Louis L'Amour. And so there was like a real hard boiled element, but horror, horror, horror. Uh, infusing that. These days, I write crime novels. I, I'm writing, actually, right now, I'm working on weird fantasy mixed with science fiction, all uh, Gene Wolfe and Jack Vance's Dying Earth and some of his pure science fiction stuff, mixed with Robert E. Howard, uh, Sword and Sorcery. And, and it's quite different from, from anything I've done. You'll recognize some of the hard-boiled elements in some of the stories, and some of the stories don't have that at all. But it has allowed me to experiment. I'm not, I'm not stuck just writing one thing, but conversely, it also allows me to, there's this ramifying element. I can continually go back and keep interrogating. Like one of my favorite, um, one of my obsessions is uh, the tough guy and the femme fatale in, in crime fiction or, or noir. And there are so many it's a it's a niche right it's a one mm -hmm. thing all right how many ways can you write or what is there to say about a gunfighter or a yakuza you know gang you know uh, enforcer or a mafia enforcer right or a drug runner or a pinkerton agent and see i'm answering the question right there it, it's endless there because each one of these is slightly different than the other but it being kind of a student of this this aspect of the genre uh i look at like say how japanese um you know, noir unfolds. And there are some compelling similarities between, let's say, American or Western gangster cinema and gangster fiction. But there's also these dramatic and amazing uh, deviations from, from one another. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, I've been watching quite a bit of, over the last 20 years, I've watched a hell of a lot of uh, Yakuza and, and samurai flicks. Uh, uh, Lone Wolf and Cub, one of the latest ones that I watch, and they'll do things. It, tough guys do things differently, or, or excuse me, writers do uh, treat tough guys differently in Asians in Asian uh, art forms than than Americans do. And there's just there are so many different elements. And so I wrote a few years ago. I did write a story. I tackled a story about the Yakuza, and he shows his emotions in ways that I don't have, uh, or or somebody like Parker Elmore Leonard would never have a 
you know, a Western character do. And so uh, I, I feel like kind of like when we, when we talk about some other subject, we say, you know, love, romance, there, that never, it's never out of style. There are mm -hmm. conventions, there are cliches, there are formula, but we'll never be tired. We'll never completely excavate them or interrogate them to the point where, okay, everything's been said. Even something like the zombie um, or vampire, uh, you know, monsters, uh, you know, in literature and cinema. Okay. Oh my God. It's another, it's another zombie oh, story. And it's true. Not to, not, not to interrupt you. That That's how I first became familiar with your work. I think it was uh, in the Canyon in, in I'm going to get a, you know, it's, it was like right. a vampire story. Right. And it was more different. It was, it was so different than anything I'd ever read before, even with the, the imagery of like how the thing moved it, like, you know, there was like this phased movement to it where, you know, it was it was it was on top of you before you knew it was there. Like, I, like it was like fascinating an, how you wrote that. Like an insect, I, and not to ramble. I just I get kind of excited about this because you actually, when we were uh, people will see this next month, but when we were on the Bain Forum, our podcast, you know, panel talking about your uh, weird World War Four anthology, one of the things that you and we didn't really get to talk about that too much, but maybe we should, is the idea that theme writing to theme is not a straitjacket and something i would i would almost bet that if you talked to john langan recently that might have come up because he and i have talked about that that form like as, as a college professor he'll give out right. right he'll say all right you need to write a you know a poem and it has to be you know a quatrain or something like that and that people will initially if you if you tell them it's got to be in a certain a sonnet it's got to be in a certain format and and, a, and, and stick within that a lot of people are reflexively like, oh, I, I, you know, it's all been done. And how do I? But the reality of it is, if you're a skilled writer, which is just a matter of practice in general, uh, you realize that that's not a straitjacket, that it's actually a, uh, this, is a this is the term I prefer is a writing prompt. It is. Yeah. And the way that I approach that kind of stuff is to react against it. In other words, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll follow your rules for your anthology or for your, you know, if you want me to write a sonnet or something, but I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to fuck with that uh, convention as much as I can and still be within the rules. And it becomes this game, which of course it fuels my creativity. And it's, a, I think it's a real positive way to look at it. But um, so I actually, don't, I, I love themed working, working for, uh, toward a theme. Somebody tosses me and says, Hey, we're going to do it. We're going to do a thing with vampires or vampirism. Um, what can you do? Well, it, it, so it goes back to what I, we were just talking about a moment ago is that my obsessions with, with nature and our adversarial mankind's adversarial, uh, sort of relationship with the natural world, uh, and kind of the types of people who do, who actually have been at the forefront historically of pacifying nature uh, or, or doing battle with it, so to speak, are a certain type of person. But yet, even within those two obsessions, there's almost, I could write the rest of my life and probably not fully ask, ask all the questions I want to ask. Well, just to, to point to, um, uh, kind of highlight your point, in the interview that I did with John Langan, which will appear a few days before this one, we were talking about his story in Weird World War III, and he apologized. He says, like, I thought I was supposed to write a story, like a Lovecraftian type story. And I'm like, you were. <laughs> like, that was the point of the anthology. However, the other authors 
did something a little bit different, right? For the for the, you know, the creativity forced them to come with things that were just narrowly within range, but you know weren't quite a Lovecraftian story. And he he rendered a brilliant Lovecraftian story. It was one of, again I thought it was one of the best. Uh, at least I thought it was one of the best ones in the anthology. But not everybody else did, and that's a good thing because if they had, it wouldn't have been as interesting a range as as you know it it turned out to be because you know everybody did something a little bit different. So um, well, yeah, he's, so I, he's one of the best. Oh no, I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. No, 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 I was I was I was finished. I just didn't do it very elegantly. But no, all I was going to say is you know we're you know full disclosure we're very close friends, but. Part of the reason, and I, I've said this a hundred times, I'll probably say it a hundred more. Part of the reason that we became friends and that we remain friends is because uh, I have such great respect for his his work and and how and his and, and his you know aesthetic. So he he really is one of the you know I can objectively say that you know that he's one of the great horror writers operating to and weird fiction yeah. writers. And he routinely has, you know, among the one of the best stories in any anthology that I that I've seen. So, um, and it is kind of funny because you know we have that we you know we strategize a lot, although we don't. It, that might be a strong way to put it, but you know we both share ideas for stories. We don't. We don't. Um, I don't think either one of us actually shares manuscripts with anybody. But I certainly get on the phone with him, or or if I'm visiting him, take the dogs out. For a walk, or, or we have a or we have a glass of scotch after we watch. Because we, we, prior to COVID, I frequently would go over and we would mm -hmm. we would watch you know the weekly um, you know samurai flick or or yakuza flick or western or whatever, and then we would talk about it afterward. But you know we talk about because we're in a lot of the same anthologies, and um, sometimes we even if, if we know we're both going to be in one or we're trying to be in one will add elements of each other's stories. Uh, matter of fact, the one that you mentioned in a cavern in a canyon. Yeah. That's, I, I forget what his story is called in there. Um, I remember what it's about. And, and his is more directly a vampire story, but we both have Orlando. The name Orlando is used. They're just different. In mine, it's a dog and his person. But we both talk about Orlando. The help, the, the monster that's in, um, in my story briefly is is alluded to in his story but it's all done in such a way that if you're not looking for it you might not ever even you could you could read that anthology three times and maybe not pick it up but did you do did you do that in my anthology no okay not that okay. i know of but but i haven't read everybody's story i haven't read his story i know it's a play um he sometimes does stuff we sometimes do stuff and don't tell each other so it wouldn't shock me if he not necessarily about uh because i did tell him I was writing about Rex, so I, I don't know if he mentioned Rex in there or a canine, but you never know. But we didn't intend, we don't yeah. do it very often. See, that's the thing is the whole trick is you just do it every every now and then. But it goes back to your you kind of the rules, your guidelines. We've talked about this, we're like, oh, we're we're both gonna try to be in this one anthology. I mean, you never assume you're gonna be in it. You're just but we're both aiming to be in there. And so what are you working on? What are you working on? And we we have collaborated with, well. You know, I know these other ten guys. What they what they write? Let's. I'm I'm probably going to do something, you know, off in this other direction type of thing. And it's it's like predicting weather. I mean, you can't long range forecast. You don't really know what somebody's going right. to do. But I'm sure somebody could look at like if they, you know, if if somebody like say Paul Tremblay could look at my writing and go, 
oh, he's going to maybe be in this anthology. Well, probably some hard ass in his story. So I, I think I'm not going to have any hard asses in my story. You know, that would be a safe bet. Right. And then I, and then I would, of course, fool him and, and have someone who has absolutely no inclination to ever defend themselves, a pacifist. <laughs> but so in ter- so so we talked about themes is a little bit of the you know the heart the the uh kind of hard ass and, and there's also kind of the genus uh lo- loci aspect mm-hmm. any anything else that kind of often appears in in what you write well a couple things one i am a i'm a believer or an adherent of the ecstasy of influence so you know, I'll, if, if someone credits me with an influence that I don't think exists, I might say, Hey, I don't, I don't deserve that credit. I, you know, I, I haven't read enough of, you know, Herman Hesse to, to really take mm-hmm. that credit, but a lot, a lot of writers, or at least who have admitted it really, you know, I don't want to read other people's stuff. Cause I don't want to, you know, be like somebody else or I'm the opposite. I love it. When somebody says that reminds me of Cormac McCarthy. I'm like, well, it should. I've read a lot of Cormac yeah. McCarthy you know, the only time it's ever bad is if like, well, this is like word for word, somebody and, you know, nobody, <laughs> no, I mean, no authors are doing that, that. Right. But right. you're not going to avoid though, imagery, themes, even, even, I mean, we're working with the same 26 letters and we're, and we're working within overlapping genres. There's just going to be a lot of overlap. And so what I've always, I shouldn't say always, but what, at least for the last 15 years of my writing career, I've looked at like like uh, like combat arts. Um, you know, if if you can't, if you're not strong enough to throw the guy, you let him throw himself. I, I'm not strong enough to buck influence. Matter of fact, I mean, I don't think anybody is. I don't. There's very right. few writers, if any, that I think are wholly original. What they did with what influenced them is what's wholly original, and so that's the, the strategy that that I that I write with that I for for. for publication is that yeah you you know of course it sounds like mccarthy of course it sounds like a john carpenter movie because these are all the things that are in the stew of our sub of my subconscious so i roll with it and then try to but then try to add to it to try to do my my take on it so that it, it pays homage to what influences me but also justifies its existence by doing something different so you can say oh Laird Barron's Coleridge character, that hard case detective of his, sure reminds me of, like, could be Jack Reacher or Travis McGee. Those are huge guys. Spencer's a pretty huge guy. They're all laconic. They're all kind of smart mouth. But yeah, but he does this other thing with it. The guy is mixed race and he's, there's like this mythological Beowulf kind of supernatural or occult mm-hmm. thing going in the background. And so you add your, your, your spin to it. And, um, I don't know if I really have much else to say besides that, just that, um, you know, I'm, uh, I'm a believer of the ecstasy of influence. And, and so, but what was the original, I, I've lost track of the original thing that you asked. You had a, uh, a specific. Just other, other themes that, that. Oh, you other, right, right. Oh, so what I was going to say is I guess that sort of answers it in a way. Um, but what, what I was kind of getting at is you don't always know what your obsessions are until you've written right. enough to look back and go, as I did. Wow. I guess Poe really influenced me far more, even though I read him out the ass when I was a kid. Yeah. Uh, so much insanity in my stories, so much drug use, so much drunkenness, and so many open, or, or uh, excuse me, living burial. <laughs> the idea of living burial keeps coming back, uh, which I have a fear of in my, in my own life. 
or a, a, a phobia. Um, and, and so there's that, but there's also animals play a huge, specifically dogs and horses play a huge role in my fiction and more so over hmm. the last eight, seven, eight years, uh, dogs frequently uh, appear. And I feel very strongly about our relationship to dogs in general. Right. I feel like right, well, um, we have a pact with them that obviously goes back thousands of years. I, I, I don't know where I read this. I don't know if you wrote this either, but um, it may, it may have been something you wrote, but I, I, I can't remember. I just like, it, it's like a bond that started from kind of wolves outside the campfire yeah. and slowly one was kind of the pact was, was made right. Where they, the first humans and you know, shared food with the dog. And then they, I, I don't know if I read that from you or if that's just something that's just like a, just a generic no, I, general memory. Right. It's hard to say I've written about it, but I've also read about it. So I can't say I'm not I'm certainly not the first person to make the observation. Um, I got to give brief credit to kind of my more formal thoughts on it over the last few years to um, uh, Linda Shea, Michael, Michael Shea's wife. I was visiting them there in uh, Napa wine country. They have a, they had a place or they do have a place over there and we were walking through the Hills and they were, we were just talking and they were like, our dog moose used to go through the field over there. And he was so big and our kids were so little that they could literally hang off his belly. Cause he had thick fur and, and like hang on him while he was walking through the bushes. Um, kind of like the, the image of the Greeks hiding in the sheep when they're in the, in, in the site, you know, in um, uh, Polyphemus's cave. And so we're talking about that, but what she said, she said this thing that has never left me. She said, well, you know, uh, dogs are sort of like having um, ESP in a way. And I'm just paraphrasing her, but she said, basically they, they were radar before we had radar. They were infrared security foot camera before we had it because she goes, the dog senses are so much, so dramatically. And of course they were wolf-like back in the day, right? Mm -hmm. So they are so dramatically uh, escalated beyond our own five senses that when a dog pricks up his or her ears, it doesn't mean that something's right outside of your field of view. There could be something quarter mile away that they're picking up on. And so she talked about how they helped us. If you think about it, how they really helped us pacify our, our regions, uh, you know, our habitat, because they allowed us to know what was, what was going on around us. And I never forgot that. Um, that, that basically, you know, and that's all she really said about it. But of course I, <laughs> I started brooding on that over the next few years and researching it and, 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 and examining my relationship with my dog at the time. And of course, thinking back to when I had sled dogs. Yeah. Um, you know, if you think about it, this is an ancient pact. And I, as a one of my characters says in a story, um, it's a debt, it's a blood debt and it's not one that we'll ever repay. We simply pay off the interest. On that note, I'm going to end this episode. In the next episode, I want to talk about your mythos in as much detail as we can get into it. Thank you, Laird.